Good evening to our neighbors and listeners. Coming at you live from the 215 here in Germantown, you are listening to the award-winning Germantown Info Hub Radio Hour. I'm the community reporter, Rashida Jamu, a.k.a. Philly's Freedom Join. And I'm Maleka Fruin, Germantown Info Hub's community organizer, living here in the neighborhood with my family. You might hear my little one in the background. Germantown Info Hub Radio Hour explores everything happening in Germantown and the city of Philadelphia. It covers them in an hour or less. You can check out what's going on by visiting our website at germantowninfohub.org, on Twitter and Instagram at Gtown Info Hub, or on Facebook at Germantown Info Hub. In 2023, it comes as no surprise that there is currently a housing crisis in Philadelphia. This crisis has been exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic that we continue to navigate through. As rent rises, residents continue to fall behind, owing an average of $2,698. Another issue that has become more common following the pandemic is illegal evictions, which Community Legal Services, also known as CLS, describes as... When landlords lock renters out, threaten them, pay them to move, or otherwise force them to move without a court hearing. A 22-page report from CLS, with the support of the Housing Initiative at Penn, revealed that 6.8% of survey participants faced an informal eviction between February 2019 and February 2020. Today, I am speaking with the city's Illegal Eviction Action Team, which comprises organizations like Community Legal Services, Senior Law Center, Citizens Police Oversight Commission, and others to talk about their work to tackle informal evictions and to speak a little bit more about the Affirmation Report. Let's get right into it. Thank you all so much for speaking with me today and allowing our neighbors to learn more about your work. I have three individuals in conversation with me today, so let's start with everyone introducing themselves. Anybody can go first. Yeah, so my name is David Wingert. I'm a social worker in the housing unit at Community Legal Services. And my name is Lauren Parker. I'm a project manager also in the housing unit at Community Legal Services. I'm Jax. I am a eviction diversion paralegal at Philadelphia Legal Assistance. I work on the hotline and speak to tenants every day. Thank you all so much for those introductions. Now let's jump right in for the sake of time and allowing everyone to speak. Can someone explain the Illegal Eviction Outreach Team and when it was formed? Yeah, absolutely. So the Illegal Eviction Action Team was originally formed back in uh, 2018 uh, as part of the uh, City of Philadelphia Housing Security Working Group. And um, the Action Team uh, had a few successes early on. We were able to pass a law um, with the help of City Council to um, basically make it uh, a little bit easier to go after landlords who had uh, completed an illegal eviction. We already had a law in the books making it illegal to lock someone out without going through the regular court process, but the law that we were able to pass makes it easier for tenants to then sue those landlords or take them to the Fair Housing Commission uh, when they've been locked out. We were not able to get a whole lot of success in, um, you know, uh, really changing the situation on the ground. Still to this day, when tenants get locked out by their landlords without going to court, um, those tenants don't have a ton of options in that moment. Um, right now, the main option is still to call the police. Um, and then their backup option is to try to get an advocate involved to try to convince their landlord to do the right thing. 
So I also didn't ask this before, but it will also be beneficial to get a clear definition of what an illegal eviction is, because I know that can also look many ways. I can take this question. Um, so defined by the police ordinance, an illegal eviction, also called a self-help eviction, is defined as any threat or attempt to evict a tenant without following the legal process. Um, some examples highlighted in the ordinance are plugging, changing or adding any lock, removing any windows or door from the unit, um, interfering with utilities, threatening violence um, either to the tenant or their belongings, um, and even failing to make timely action to restore possession. Uh, so a lot of the tenants I speak to are going through a number of these things, and sometimes they don't even know that what their landlord is doing is illegal and that they're able to fight back. Um, so a big focus of the education subcommittee of the legal action team is to provide information on what an illegal lockout is and what exactly you can do to respond to it. So last June, of course, CLS penned a report from a survey done with the support of the housing initiative at Penn um, that focused on housing issues before and during the pandemic, right? And so from what I read, it also is the largest survey done in the city, which is kind of interesting. Um, so could someone talk about this and also some of the critical findings within it? Sure, yeah, so we did, we worked with uh, researchers at Penn to try to answer some questions that, you know, we were about issues that we were hearing on the ground and in our communities every day, but for which we didn't have actual, you know, quantitative data. And so this was um, to answer questions about rent increases in the city, the impact of eviction records on tenants' future housing, um, habitability issues, across the city, and then also this big question of how many illegal evictions are happening every year. Because so we knew this was a huge issue, but we would often hear, oh, that's you know anecdotal. Um, so this survey involved um, 6,000 tenants who actually responded to the survey, making it what we think is the largest renter survey done in recent memory across the city. And just speaking about illegal evictions, we found that um, the rate of illegal evictions is on par with that of the legal eviction rate, so court-based rate, meaning that about 20,000 tenants every year are being illegally forced out of their homes, um, which is just a staggering and honestly just horrifying number. Um, so that's uh, 20,000 tenants who are being forced out without real access to assert their rights in court. Um, and try to preserve their housing. And so, um, you know, that really reinvigorated this illegal action, uh, illegal eviction action team to, to kind of get together and start um, thinking through what additional policy steps we could take, what are some community-based resources we might want to think through, um, what are some education efforts that we could also try to contemplate as well. What are some, some of those things you came up with? Well, one thing we're doing right now, um, we have a subcommittee that is focused on com community-based uh, resources and responses. And so one thing is that we're really just trying to reach out to a lot of um, local trusted organizations in various neighborhoods that are hardest hit by eviction and illegal eviction and try to just compile a resource list so mm -hmm. that when tenants are faced in the crisis of an illegal eviction, they have a couple different options that they can you know, reach out to um, 
in addition to or separate from calling the police. Okay. So that's really for any organization that offers support to tenants in this critical moment, we encourage you to reach out to us because we want to get to know you and, and be able to connect more tenants um, to your services. I was just going to speak quickly on um, the education subcommittee and what we're doing. So we're trying to create flyers uh, to educate people on what an illegal eviction is and also working with fellow advocates to figure out uh, what type of support we actively do provide already so that we can create type, some type of flow chart so uh, tenants know what to do next in the situation. Having a detailed step-by-step -step guide, I think, is a really good way to arm tenants with information on how to fight back and also demystify the process and reduce stress in that way. Um, and a lot of these educational materials are going to be geared towards flyers and things that don't require the internet or a phone to access um, and targeting uh, the distribution of those at community fridges, community centers, um, faith-based institutions, things like that throughout the city. That's amazing. You sound like you are covering your bases and getting where the um, actual community is. So that sounds really, really good. Um, I was going to ask, when would it be most appropriate for a person to contact the action team? Would it be like during an actual, like what they believe to be an illegal eviction, or would it be also possible to reach out before something like that happens? I can take this question. I think that the in the moment of an illegal eviction, uh, still the most effective uh, response is going to come from the police. And so um, while we really are, are in, you know, looking at community-based um, responses to this issue, um, currently the police are tasked with uh, responding, providing the tenant with a, with a notice of their rights, confirming whether or not it was an illegal eviction, and then citing the landlord in the event that the landlord uh, has broken the law. Um, if uh, for some reason the officer responding doesn't, uh, you know, follow the protocol, we recommend calling 911 again and getting a, a white shirt or a, a, a supervisor out to the scene. Uh, in addition to that, and there's all of this information is at phillytenant.org. Uh, there's a great article about uh, illegal evictions and what to do in real time when you're facing one. Um, but I think uh, the the sort of backup options. Maybe the landlord has succeeded in the moment, but you're, you know, you're still in, you know, the first day or two of this happening um, is to get an advocate involved. And that's when reaching out not to the action team so much as to the agencies that are on the action team. So you would call the Philly tenant hotline. Uh, you might end up calling, uh, end up speaking to uh, Jacks, if you're uh, if you're calling through the diversion program, um, but the Philly tenant hotline is going to be able to give you some good information. You might call the Fair Housing Commission, and you might uh, they might help you file a complaint, and you might file a complaint with the Attorney General's office. They've been really responsive on this issue, uh, and we've been really happy to partner with them um, to uh, yet you know once again have someone who's uh, calling that landlord and you know getting that landlord to follow the law. I'll just end with one quick story. You know, uh, just last week, we had a client, uh, you know, a, a guy I was working with. Uh, he's a veteran. He's uh, in his late 60s. And uh, here he'd been uh, had his water turned off uh, by his landlord for the second time. Uh, and he was telling me, you know, the landlord had already managed to force out four other tenants in the building. And this speaks to, you know, what Lauren was saying and what we, you know, 
really discovered through this survey that a lot of tenants are facing this question of, do I stay and deal with this landlord's threats or do I just get out of here and get out of this situation? And I think a lot of them are, are finding themselves forced out. Um, the alternative is to stick, stay and fight. And I think that's a real challenge for a lot of people. But my, my client right now, he's got a lot of fight in him and he stood up to this landlord. And sure enough, one call from the attorney general and this landlord that night at 1130 at night showed up and turned that water back on. I love that. I appreciate that story and that anecdote, actually, because it helps to visualize it for our neighbors, too, of how this would work. Is there anything else that y'all want to share that I haven't asked? Well, I'll just uh, lift up one more time uh, two resources that David mentioned. One is phillytenant.org. Um, that is a website that is geared for tenants to understand their rights and responsibilities and what rights their landlords have. Um, so that's phillytenant.org. And then we also have the Philly Tenant Hotline, which is 267-443-2500. And if you have a question about your housing issue um, or you think you might be forced out of your home, that's a good number to call. So that's 267 443-2500. And I was going to ask, is there a way that people should stay updated with the action team work away from that? Or should they just refer to what it is you just like shared? That's a good question. If we um, can share some information in the show notes, we'll do that. Um, but it is coordinated by the uh, Office of Community Empowerment and Opportunity. Um, I think they have contact information on their website. So I think that would probably be a great way to stay in touch. And that sounds good. So, all right. Um, again, just thank you all for talking about this critical emerging resource for residents across Philadelphia. And we hope that it will help as many people as possible. And we will be sure to, of course, uplift any more information as it becomes available. And I'm just going to say you all be well, and I wish you the best of luck in your work. Okay. Thanks, Rasheed. Thank you so much. Of course. Thank you. Have a good one. Sounds good. Bye-bye, y'all. Once again, neighbors, that was the Illegal Eviction Action Team speaking about their work around informal evictions. When we return, you'll hear Rashid in conversation with the host of Grief Journeys, Janice Tosto. Grief appears in various ways. Thank you, Bayou. And comes at different times in a person's life. We grieve people, pets, and even possessions. And the truth is, people are never finished grieving. While grieving is a normal thing, it can have a stigma attached to it, which leaves us feeling isolated. In the wake of gun violence, COVID-19, and the loss of her beloved dear friend, Bill, this Germantown neighbor decided to create a platform for the grievers. Here's Rashid in conversation with Grief Journey's host, Janice Tosto. Janice, it's so good to have you back in conversation on the InfoHub Hour. How are you doing today? I'm well, Rashid. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's been a while. <laughs> it has. And so I was actually going to say the last time that we spoke, you talked about professionalism. So specifically what job seekers should do during the interview process. But now we have you talking about your work with the Grief Journeys radio show. So let's just talk about that a little bit. You So I read on an old Instagram that you made that you wanted a space for people like yourself who are grievers to express themselves. So what gave you that extra push to step into this work? Well, I was motivated to create the, the uh, Grief Journeys broadcast for three reasons. Um, and I'll really make this brief. The first reason was 
back in 2020 when, uh, when COVID came into all of our lives. It was very scary. It was very scary, very concerning. Um, I myself had gotten sick. I was sick for about three weeks, took a COVID test. Uh, the test turned out to be negative. Um, it turned out that I had the flu, but just hearing about COVID every day. And again, this was so new to all of us. And then reading stories and hearing stories day after day about people dying of this disease we knew nothing about. And in some cases, multiple family members were dying. So that was very concerning. And that brought on a lot of grief for me. Um, the second reason that I created the program was because of our uh, our gun violence crisis. It's always devastating to hear about people being shot and killed, um, especially young children. My goodness, we've had so many young children shot and in some cases killed because of our gun violence crisis. And it's, you know, I was in uh, some listening groups with some uh, mostly mothers who had lost children to gun violence and, and they were just devastated and, and, and rightfully so. And um, just hearing their stories just, again, stirred up some grief in me. And then the third reason I decided to um, create Grief Journeys was a bit more personal. My dearest friend, uh, Bill Lottman, who I've known since we were children. I mean, his mother babysat my siblings and me. We lived in the same building, two floors apart. He died of pancreatic cancer. And it, it literally, it felt like it happened overnight. Like one minute I was texting him about some schoolwork that he was doing. He was working on a bachelor's degree and I was asking him about some coursework he was doing. And then the next thing you know, I'm visiting him in hospice. And he died the day before my birthday. And to lose such a wonderful friend, a lifelong friend, it was just absolutely devastating. So you put all of those things together. I was walking around with a lot of grief. And one of the things that I did was I became aware of something called um, National Grief Awareness Day, which in reality, every day is Grief Awareness Day. I went on um, a local community television program in the Bronx, where I'm from, Bronx, New York City, and had an opportunity to pay tribute to Bill and to talk about uh, grief awareness. And then after that, Tom Cassetta of uh, G-Town Radio was holding a workshop at the uh, Coleman Library, and he was looking for people from the community to contribute content to uh, G-Town Radio. And since I had had some prior experience, you know, I've been on programs with you before, you know, I came out to the workshop and I said, you know, let me see what this is about. So I went and, you know, talked to Tom about what he was looking for. And incidentally, an event was coming up and uh, I was able to cover that. So I, I got to covering a, a few events. And then after that, I started thinking, you know, I, I'd really like to do some kind of program where we can talk about grief. Now, I'm not a therapist, so I didn't want it to be, um, I didn't want the program to revolve around therapy. I wanted it to be a program where people could come and they could talk about their loved ones. And when I was early in my grief during that time, I was doing a lot of research on grief. And one of the things that I found out that was really important was that a lot of grievers were saying that they really wanted the opportunity to talk about their loved ones. They felt that people were continually shutting them down and telling them that they should be over their grief and that they should move on. The person is gone, so you need to move on. 
And grievers were saying, no, that's not how it works. There's no timeline to grieve. And I want the opportunity to continue to talk about the person I love and lost. So when I started reading that research, I said, that's it. That's the platform that I need to create. And that's how Grief Journeys was born. I did some training with Joanna at G-Town Radio. And then I decided that the best way for me to approach this was to pre-record my shows using Zoom. So that's what I did. My first two shows were an introduction. I did a tribute to Bill. And then my very first interview was with my neighbor, Wadia Saleh, who had lost her son uh, unexpectedly, the age of 44. He died in the sleep of a heart attack. And I will never forget the day that I found out about his death. I was at work and um, some someone had uh, donated some flowers to the staff. And I remember taking a bouquet of flowers with me. And I love flowers, but I'm not one to buy bouquets of flowers or anything like that. But I did take a bouquet of flowers with me. So I got home and um, I'm walking towards my door and I ran into Miss Wadia. That's what I call her, Miss Wadia. And I looked at her and I said, hey, how are you doing? And the first thing she says to me is, my son died. And I mean, my jaw dropped to the ground because we literally have been speaking about her son like two weeks beforehand. She said, my son died. It's just so unexpected. And I mean, I had no words. And I looked in my bag and I took the bouquet of flowers out and I gave them to her. And I thought to myself, this is why I picked up this bouquet of flowers because my friend is grieving. I didn't know she was grieving at the time, but I, I brought these for her because she is grieving now. So she was my very, very first program. Well, first of all, let me let me kind of just bring this back a little bit. Thank you for the vulnerability and also talking about your friend. My grandmother actually passed away from pancreatic cancer and you're 100% correct. It goes like that. It goes like that. It's an instant. Yes. Found out. Yes. We found out in February of 2015, and by June of 2015, she was gone. Yes. So yes. I understand that immensely, and so thank you for sharing that. And then the second thing is, you talked about the studies that you researched, the time of COVID, of course, and what that brought people, and then the gun violence epidemic. And the one thing that I can definitely draw connections between that is that idea of like loneliness and kind of isolation that the grief can sometimes create. So does that isolation and that loneliness also serve as an inspiration for this radio show? Again, like you said, you can't be people's therapists, but you can 100% help people share their stories. And in turn, that can help other people. Absolutely. Sometimes people do feel very lonely in their grief. First of all, we are grief averse in this country. We don't like to talk about death. We don't like to talk about grief, even though we encounter these things every single day. And mind you, grief isn't only about losing people we love. People grieve when they lose a job, when a relationship breaks up. People grieve, believe it or not, when their kids grow up and leave the home. People grieve when they don't get the promotion they thought they were going to get. People grieve for all kinds of reasons. So grief comes for us all, but we don't like to talk about it. And that's part of the problem. We like to sit in silence and that's not always healthy. And I find with my guests for them, they enjoy having the opportunity to talk about their loved one because it doesn't make them 
sit in that loneliness. They have someone else that they can talk to, someone who understands and who strives to understand that this is what my grief is looking like. And that's so important. So yes, loneliness is a big factor because we don't like to talk about grief and death, but we need to. We need to have more conversations about them. And you said that we are adverse to grief. So I also just want you, like just asking you person to person, when talking about grief, it's kind of also essential to define it, right? But then that can also look different to everybody. So in your words, in your experience, Janice, what is grief? Grief is when you are mourning the loss of something significant or someone significant in your life. Grief is about mourning and it's about recognizing that you have lost something significant in your life. Now, grief looks different for each of us. Grief is so individual. As a matter of fact, um, in uh, one of my recent programs, I interviewed uh, a stand-up comedian who lost her boyfriend, again, unexpectedly, suddenly, back in 2019. And she made that observation that grief is as individual as a fingerprint. So grief looks different for everyone. But grief is that mourning of some type of loss in your life. And other people would define grief as love. You know, when you lose something you love, you mourn it, you yearn for it. That's grief. I just want to share something. I one time heard that grief is love that doesn't know where to go or doesn't know how to process itself. And that's just what that put me in the mind of. Mm -hmm. I have heard that as well. Yes. Now, you talked about your friend Bill. Do you want to just talk about your friend Bill just in general a little bit more? Who he was, a little bit more about your friendship. I would love to hear a little bit more about that. Yes, like I said, I'm laughing because, you know, again, this is part of grief too. People think that grief is all about crying and and be, being sad. That's part of it for some folks. But, you know, you can be grieving and still be smiling and feel some joy and feel some amusement, you know, grief. And those things are not mutually exclusive. But like I said, uh, Bill and I, we grew up together. Uh, we lived in the same building in the Bronx, two floors apart. His mother babysat my siblings and me. I mean, he was, when he was, when we were younger, I couldn't stand him. He was a pain in the neck. He was always getting into something. I mean, just, <laughs> just always getting into something. His nickname was Boo Boo. So we all called him Boo Boo, but he was something else. But one other thing about him, uh, he, he was just so intelligent, so smart. Like he wanted to do things. He wanted to know things. But I was mostly focused on the fact that he was a paid in the net. But it's interesting because as we got older and, you know, went our, our separate ways, when we would run into each other, we would talk like we were just the best of friends. And I mean, it was fantastic. We could talk about different things. But then again, you know, our lives went, you know, we traveled different paths. And it was actually about 10 years ago, we were uh, we were at an event and we just we just connected again. We were talking about old times and it was just so funny. And we decided then, hey, you know, we really need to stay in touch because we were talking. We were having such a good time just, you know, recalling old memories. We need to stay in touch. And, and we did. Um, he was humorous. He was so community minded. And I'm going to tell you something that happened um, back in December. Like, so I'm 
I'm the type of person who definitely believes in signs. Like since Bill died, I, I have just received all kinds of signs from him because I still believe that even though he's not here physically, he he is still with me. Bill was very community minded um, in uh, the area where we grew up in the Bronx, our, our uh, public housing development is called Bronx River. And he and uh, a group of young men and a group of young women, they worked together. They worked, they were so community minded. They talked about how to improve the community. They talked to young people about the importance of self-love and family you know, and helping the community and not destroying the community. So he's extremely community minded. Um, he loved science fiction. He was a big science fiction fan. He loved those kinds of things. He was a racial justice advocate. He was one of those people who would be out on the street. If he were still alive today, trust and believe, he would be out on the streets right now. He was just a powerful personality, but he was also a kind hearted soul. He had so many friends. He was so friendly. I call him the extra extrovert because he could talk to anyone. And so anyway, going back to, to, to these signs, he was working on a documentary about our, uh, our old community um, years ago when we first reconnected. And he had given me some of the footage. And for some reason, I had misplaced it. I think it has something to do with some of the data. I have too much data on my computer or something. But anyway, I lost the footage. And I don't know why. I never said anything to him. Anyway, this was years ago. Back in December, I was just, you know, thinking to myself. And, and I was, you know, feeling a bit sad. I said, you know, I'm forgetting how Bill used to laugh. Because he just had this laugh that his laugh was was so boisterous. I mean, you couldn't help but laugh along with him. And I was sadly thinking to myself, you know, I'm forgetting his laugh. Now I have some of his old voicemails, so I know what his voice sounds like, but I said, you know, I'm forgetting his laugh. About two weeks after I said that, I was on my computer doing some stuff for grief journeys, going to Google Drive. And what do you think pops up on my computer? But his interviews, yes, the interviews from his documentary. And I went, oh, my goodness, I don't believe this. I started looking at them again. And don't you know, I found some of the interviews that he did where he was laughing. And I was so overwhelmed with emotion. I just could not believe it. I said, you know, look at this. I get to hear him laugh again. But that's who, who Bill was. He was just a wonderful, caring, giving individual. Like I said, big heart, had lots of friends, very intellectual, curious about the world, community-minded. He wanted to see the world be a better place. If you had the opportunity to say one last thing to him, send him one last message, what do you think it would be? Wow, that is a great question. Oh, no, I know what I would say to him. I would say to him, make some room for me because when I come, <laughs> when it's time for me to leave this earth, it's back on. <laughs> We're going to be laughing and, <laughs> and watching movies and talking. So that's what I would say to him. Make some room for me, my friend, because it's going to be on and you are not going to be able to get rid of me. <laughs> it is infinity and beyond. I love that so much. You said it so matter-of-factly, too. It was almost yes. like you had to think of something else, and you was like, no, I'm going to say this. Yes. So I love hearing that. I love the vulnerability, <laughs> and I appreciate it, too. And, <laughs> Janice, you're coming up on a year. 
Yes. Of yes. hosting this, and this is coming up on the twenty fifth, so yes. right around the corner. Yes. So how do you feel about the show's first anniversary, and what have you learned from it? Well, I am thrilled. I have to tell you, I knew that this was something that I needed to do, but it was scary because, again, people don't like to talk about grief. They just don't. But I took this leap of faith. I said, you know what? This is a way for me to honor my best friend. This is a way for me to open up that door to not only honor him, but to give space to other people who want to honor their loved ones. So I was a bit scared. Because again, I know how people feel about talking about or thinking about grief. But I said, you know what? I've got to do this. I've, I've got to do this. So I am going to go ahead and do this. And it was so funny because after training was over, Joanna said to me, okay, Janice, it's time to get started. And uh, it's amazing how it, the, the process just seemed to be so effortless. And I'm going to honestly say that I believe that that's the case because Bill is with me. I really feel like Bill is my co-producer. It's like, like, I'll give you an example. So when I was putting the music, when I was putting the music together for Grief Journeys, I knew what, I, I knew the the uh, the opening theme that I wanted because I like Debussy. So I knew I wanted it to be Arabesque, um, the, the Arabesque song because it's so pretty. So when I reached out to Tom Cassette, I said, hey, Tom, I need a copy of the Arabesque. And so he sent me, you know, the regular copy of Arabesque. And then he sent me Branford Marsalis's version. I had never heard it before. I listened to Branford Marsalis. I said, oh my goodness, this is the copy that I'm meant to have. This is the one. So I started using that. And then I was thinking about a closing theme. And again, it was like all of a sudden something just came to me. It said, use You're My Best Friend by Queen. I love Queen. I am a big fan of Queen. That's like my favorite rock group. But it just, it just came, it just came to me, use that song. And I really feel like that was Bill saying, Janice, that's the song that you need to, to use because that's how I feel about you. That's how you feel about me. And that's how I feel about you. You're my best friend. So that's the song that you need to use. And then there have been times when I've been doing research and like things just pop into my mind and songs just pop into my head. And I'm like, yeah, that's Bill. That's, that's my co-producer right there. Yeah. So I'm excited that um, I've completed 12 shows for year one. Um, yesterday, I completed my first show for year two. It feels fantastic. And um, I am so gratified and so thankful to all of the folks who opened up and shared their stories with me. And I, I thank them so much for trusting me with their stories, because it's it's hard to be vulnerable to to go to someone and say, you know, I, I miss this person. And uh, I, I, to, some days I feel horrible. Some days I don't want to get out of bed. Some days, you know, this is going on. You know, it's, it's not easy for people to be vulnerable, but people have been vulnerable. And I'm grateful to them for uh, making this first year so wonderful and so meaningful for me and for them. So this is a separate question. What's your favorite thing about working on the show? And it can be anything from the people to the actual recording to actually being in the studio. Because I know, again, last year you said that was a that was like a new experience for you being in that station. So I, I just as a radio host or radio host, I wonder what, you know, your favorite part of working on radio on this is. My favorite part is that I am growing my grief community. That's the thing I love the most, that I am growing my grief community, that everyone that I speak to has become part of my 
grief community. We can talk to each other and we understand each other. And again, our grief is individual, but uh, we all know that grief can be a beast at times. Grief can be very difficult. It can be confusing. Um, but at the same time, we can we can experience joy and and peace and love and happiness even while we're grieving. And I'm just very grateful again to all of the folks that I've interviewed because, like I said, they have become an important part of my grief community. So next question, I might be jumping the gun a little bit, so don't bite my head off. But I just want to know: Have you ever thought about bringing this content? to another format, like video or even podcast. Because again, when you think about it, like you said, like there's a full community of grievers and like you're bringing them together. So I just wonder if if it's ever come to your mind to like try to try another format, not necessarily saying leaving the radio show, but there can be multiple dimensions of it, right? Well, I do have um, other accounts. I do have other podcast accounts. So every time I complete a show, then I also make sure that I'm putting my show out on um, my other uh, podcast accounts as well. So, and from what I understand, uh, one local college, one local university has picked up grief journeys too. I haven't heard it yet, but I got the word that another college has picked up grief journeys, and I'm just absolutely thrilled about that. And and again, I, I'm I'm happy about that because again, I want to encourage people to talk about grief. It's it's so important and it's nothing to be ashamed of. We all grieve. Like some people are more open about it than others. Um, the important thing is to own your grief and to be comfortable with your grief and to be able to say, yes, you know, I am a griever and this is what my grief looks like. And um, I, I accept that and I, I can live with that. I think that that's so important. I mean, there are days, I have hard days too. When Bill died, let me tell you, there were days when I could not get out of bed. I had insomnia. I couldn't eat. Um, I was crying all the time. I mean, it was so hard. And what really encouraged me during that time was, again, doing my research. I, I was spending a lot of time on Instagram and reading other people's posts and reading about different resources. That helped a lot because I found that there was community, that there were other people who were experiencing what I was experiencing, and they really understood. That helped me. But also, Bill helped me because shortly after he died, I started receiving all of these signs. It was a lot of signs through music and just and just things that I could tell you like you would not believe. Like I'll give you an example. Um, and I and I probably said this one time before somewhere, but um, I was listening to this podcast, this Greek podcast, and it was about signs. And I was thinking to myself, I want a sign from Bill. I want to see my name in public. <laughs> I didn't know what it's going to look like, but I said, I want to see my name in public. The very next day, the very next day, I got a phone call from a reporter at 6 ABC <laughs> and she wanted to do a story. And I said, oh, okay. You know, and I'm not even thinking about, you know, what I had asked Bill the day before. So I'm like, oh, okay. So she comes out, she interviews me, we talk. She said, oh, okay, you're going to be on the 6 p.m. news. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so, you know, I'm home, turn on the news. I see the story. I see my name. I said, look at that. I said, look at that. I just said to Bill yesterday, I want to see my name. And there it is. And I said, you know what? This dude, is, he's showing off now. He's showing off. But, you know, this is a good thing. But I definitely, I, I believe that Bill is still with me. Like I said, I call him my co-producer. 
And that helps me a lot. And, and again, that doesn't mean that I don't cry. doesn't mean that I don't feel that pain and that sadness. I do. But I also am comforted by the fact that my best friend, he's still with me. And that, that gives me a lot of joy while I'm grieving. Wow. You said so many things in that one thing, 6ABC, a college class picking it up. Like, just wow. I'm so happy. So happy to hear this. This is great work. Honestly, it really is. Oh, man. Janice, we're coming up on time, but I just want to make sure that you have the floor to share anything else that's on your heart. Um, and if there is anything else. Yes. One more thing. So I was telling you about uh, those interviews that I found that um, Bill had compiled. He was working on a documentary. So I had a chance to look through the content after all of these years. And I said, you know, I said, you know, I was talking to Bill. I said, you know, you have some wonderful stuff here. And you know what? I want to turn this into a mini documentary and I am going to play this on the radio. So that's what I'm working on now. I'm working on a half hour mini doc that I am going to play on my June show, my June, <laughs> my June episode of Grief Journeys, which is my death anniversary episode. I'm going to turn the floor over to Bill and I'm going to play his mini documentary. And it's only right as your co-producer that he gets that credit. <laughs> that's right. Absolutely. So last thing, let our listeners know how they can listen to Grief Journeys and how they can stay updated. And of course, how they can contact you if they want to share their story. Sure. So Grief Journeys airs on G-Town Radio the last Friday of each month at 7 a.m. And uh, if you're on, if you're here in Philadelphia, you could turn on the radio, uh, turn the dial to 92.9 FM. Um our uh, the website is gtownradio.com. So you can also go to the website and you can listen to the radio program. Um, to follow up with me, I'm on Facebook, Janice Tosto, Philadelphia PA. But I do a lot of you know posting on um, Instagram. Uh, my Instagram page is um, at Grief Journeys Host. That is my name. So you can always reach out to me um, on Instagram at Grief Journeys Host. And I'm constantly posting about my show and updates. I do a lot of promotion for my show. So that's the best way for uh, people to get a hold of me at Grief Journeys Host on Instagram. Well, Janice, thank you so much for joining me for our second on-air conversation for the Info Hub Hour. And it has been such a pleasure to discuss your work. And of course, we'll be on the lookout for your work and stay in touch with you. I'm definitely looking forward to that June show. So I'll definitely be tuning into that one to make sure that I can hear Bill's work and his voice, of course, as well. And this may be our second conversation, but I'm confident it will not be our last. So I ask to just please take care of yourself and to continue to spread this joy and this message around grief. Okay, Janice? Thank you so much, Rasheed. Thank you so much for the invitation. I really appreciate it. Once again, that was Janice Tosto speaking about her work on the Grief Journeys radio show. If you want to learn more about Grief Journeys, you can check out Grief Journeys host on Instagram to stay updated on up on to stay updated on upcoming shows. You can listen to the newest episode this Friday at 7 a.m. on 92.9 FM or stream it live at gtownradio.com. Before we end today's show, I will share some events and opportunities gathered for our reporter roundup where we occasionally share events and opportunities in the interest of our neighbors available here in Germantown and around the city. So first up, Philly Forest is looking for weekly and bi-weekly vendors for the Germantown Farmer's Market, 
which will begin on May 13th and run through November 18th. The markets are Saturdays from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m., and it is $25 per market day. They welcome farmers, bakeries, mushroom farms, herbalists, and any other local food business to apply. You can visit phillyforest.com slash farmers market to learn more and apply. Next up is some old news, but great news for our Germantown residents. Once again, tenants in zip codes 19144 now have the right to counsel and are entitled to free legal aid if they are facing eviction. Philadelphia's right to counsel law guarantees free legal representation to eligible low-income renters. Eligible renters have a right to counsel when they face eviction proceedings, lease or other tenancy termination proceedings, PHA housing subsidy termination proceedings. And under these circumstances, right to counsel is available for judicial proceedings, such as those in municipal court, and administrative proceedings, such as those held by the Fair Housing Commission. To qualify for right to counsel, you must have an income at or below 200% of the federal poverty level and live in zip code that is covered by right to counsel. Currently, the eligible zip codes are 19139, 19121, 19134, and once again, 19144. Immigration status does not affect eligibility. And remember that the right to counsel means that you have the free access to a lawyer, so there is no cost for exercising this right. To access these services, you should do the following. Call the Philly Tenant Hotline at 267-443-2500. The hotline is staffed by the Tenant Union Representative Network. Interpretation services are available. If you don't have access to a phone, you can visit Community Legal Services, otherwise known as CLS, to be screened for services. They are located at 1424 Chestnut Street in the 19102 zip code area. The CLS walk-in hours are Monday through Thursday, 9 a.m. to 12 p.m. When you call the hotline, you will need to describe your situation to the hotline staff. You'll need to provide some information to help the staff determine whether you're eligible for rights to counsel. This might include your household income, zip code, and other details. And you may also be asked to provide documentation like a hearing notice or a notice of housing subsidy termination. After explaining your situation, you'll learn about your options for getting help. If you're eligible for rights to counsel, the staff will refer you to a legal service provider. The provider will ask you for more information so that they can support your case. Providers include community legal services, legal clinic for the disabled, and senior law center. If you're not eligible for rights to counsel, the staff will still try to connect you with other services or advice. Once again, learn more about Right to Counsel and see if you're eligible by contacting the Philly Tenant Hotline at 267-443-2500. You can also find additional renter resources at phillytenant.org. Lastly, we encourage our neighbors to spread the word about our current opening for an engagement reporting intern. If selected, this person will work with us, German Tenant Hub, and equally informed Philly to produce community-centered reporting and bridge the digital divide. You will work on in-depth stories for Germantown Info Hub, learn more about the Germantown neighborhood by engaging the community, produce some print and maybe even some radio stories and more. This is a part-time hourly position of 15 to 20 hours per week. 
The pay is $17 per hour. We encourage formerly incarcerated people, LGBTQIA plus folks, immigrants, and people of color to apply. Applications close next Tuesday, February 28th at midnight. So get those applications in. To apply, learn more about the position, visit our Instagram at GTown Info Hub and apply using the link in our bio. Please come work with us. Come work with us. Come, 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 come work with us. Well, Germantown, it's about that time. If you have story ideas or information that you want to share with the Germantown Info Hub, feel free to email us at gtown.infohub at gmail.com. You can also keep up with us on social media at Gtown Info Hub on Twitter and Instagram and Germantown Info Hub on Facebook. Additionally, you can read our stories at germantowninfohub.org. We also encourage listeners to text the Equally Informed Text Line, another program under Resolve Philly, allowing Philadelphians to access information regarding Philadelphia services. The Equal Info Line is a free bilingual English and Spanish question and answer texting service that provides subscribers with vetted local news and resources. To start asking questions, you can text Equal Info to 73224. Equally Informed also supplies a community-driven print newsletter available at health centers and libraries all over the city. And that is about it. So once again, I am Rashida Jamu, the reporter for the Info Hub. And I'm the community organizer, Maleka Fruin. Thank you to our guests for speaking with us today. And as always, thank you to our neighbors for always listening and engaging and allowing the Info Hub to serve you. And until next time, good night, Germantown.